Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And this is a special Grand Rounds because it's part of this year's Symposium on Great Issues in Medicine and Global Health. And we're delighted to have our speaker with us uh, this morning, who in a moment will be introduced to you by Dr. Susan Carroll. And I'll briefly introduce her. Um, to go through some housekeeping, there are some financial relationships that our speaker has by nature of his research in vaccine work with uh, Merck, SmithKline, and Glaxo. Uh, and those are obvious from his work. Um, I wanted to just briefly talk about the culinary medicine program again. We do this before each Grand Rounds. It's an educational forum. I noticed that not everyone showed up for it early enough to take advantage of the educational content, but know that there is educational content. We are providing this over the year. Uh, plan to come a little bit early and you can learn about um, what we're trying to teach providers about healthy eating so that we can teach our patients and our colleagues about that as well. This morning had a trivia quiz. The question was, what type of fat or oil should be avoided? The answer is trans fats. The person chosen, many people had this correct answer. The, the person chosen out of the hat was Bob McClellan. All right, and Bob should know about that. And for that, Bob, we would like to give you this bottle of olive oil. Thank you. <clears throat> so I'm delighted to, uh, to briefly introduce Dr. Uh, Susan Carroll to you. Susan is the Chief Medical Officer of the Indian Health Service, and she uh, is also a captain in the uh, U.S. Um, um, I'm sorry, the Department of uh, Public Health Service. Right, right. So uh, Susan was at Dartmouth as an undergraduate. She is a member of the Tuscarora Indian Nation from Niagara Falls, New York. After being at Dartmouth, she uh, got her um, medical degree at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And then she went to UMass Medical Center in Worcester, where she did her surgical residency and chief surgical residency. And then she was also uh, in her training in laparoscopy at the Mass General Hospital as a special <coughs> clinical fellow in laparoscopy training. She um, serves as the liaison in this role of a chief medical officer and policy advisor to many of the people involved with the planning of healthcare uh, in the um, Indian Health Service and uh, for our Alaska natives and has a very important role there. Susan, we are delighted that you've come to Dartmouth to be part of this symposium and I'm delighted that you'll introduce today's speaker. Good morning, um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's my honor today to, to introduce um, our speaker, Dr. Dr. Matu, sorry, Matu Santosham. Dr. Santosham is the director of the John Hopkins <coughs> Center of American Indian Health. Um, he was born in Belor, India, 70 years or so ago. <laughs> um, he's obtained his MBBS at Jipmer, which is in Pondicherry, India. He moved to the United States and obtained his board certification in pediatrics and an MPH at the John Hopkins University and completed a fellowship in pediatric infectious disease at John Hopkins. He's the founder of the John Hopkins Center of American Indian Health and um, that's in Baltimore, Maryland where he's presently a professor in the Department of International Health and Pediatrics at John Hopkins. Um, he directed the Division of Health Systems for John Hopkins Blumberg <coughs> School of Public Health from 2000 to 2009. Um, Dr. Santosham is, an, is internationally known for his work on oral rehydration therapy, childhood vaccines, and disseminating uh, dissemination of pediatric prophylaxis uh, to vulnerable populations worldwide. He works in partnership with the Indian Health Service and at, within American Indian and Alaska Native communities. And he's conducted landmark vaccine efficacy trials, including rotavirus, haemophilus influenza type B, or HIV, 
um, conjugate vaccine and the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Um, Native American children used to die from the disease um, at a rate of, of 10 to 50 times the US average. Um, and due to his advocacy, these vaccines now save three to five million lives a year in the United States and across the globe. Dr. Santoshin works with the White Mountain Apache tribe. Um, he did that to pioneer the use of the oral rehydration therapy, which we know today as Pedialyte. Um, it has become the standard of care in the United States and has saved over six, 60 million lives since uh, 1980. Dr. Santoshim serves on many national and international committees and promotes childhood health throughout the world. Um, he's worked with the WHO, USAID, UNICEF, the Gates Foundation in, in over 30 countries. And he has authored over 250 peer-reviewed journals and served as a reviewer for several international medical journals. He's the recipient of many awards, um, and re most recently the Albert Sabin Gold Medal Award in April of this year, which is awarded to distinguished members of research communities who have made extraordinary contributions in the field of vaccines. And in October, he received the Fry's Prize for, improvement, um, for improving health for his seminal research in vaccine development, policy, and advocacy towards global prevention of Haemophilus influenza type B disease, saving each year more than 370,000 children's lives. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Dr. Mato Santoshan. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, for that gracious introduction. The most important thing you said in that introduction that I'm your friend. It's honored to be your friend. So this is a great honor for me to be here at Dartmouth, one of the most prestigious institutions in this country. And I would like to tell you a little bit about my uh, childhood so you'd understand. And some of the failures in my life, I probably failed more times than anyone else in this room. And uh, you will realize why I feel so humbled and so honored to be in front of you. And I'll also tell you how I ended up at the White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation. People keep asking me, how did you end up there? I said, well, Columbus got lost looking for America, and I got lost looking for India. So we <laughs> ended up in just 16 places. I want to start out first by uh, acknowledging my family, and especially my wife, Pat, who who had to put up with enormous uh, difficulties when I was traveling. As you all know, anyone who travels, anytime you travel, one of the children gets sick. I mean, that's sort of a standard thing that always happens when you travel. And my two children, Vasant and Shireen, have been tremendously supportive. I was born to my parents. Uh, if you notice the name here, it says S.J. Wilford. My dad went to college in 19, around 1920. That time, India was ruled by the British. And the principal there asked him, what is your name? He said, John Santoshim, sir. He said, nobody can pronounce that. We'll just call you Wilfred. So he, for the rest of his career, he was known as S.J. Wilfred. And it's interesting, he actually became ambassador. And uh, here he is uh, congratulating President Kawinda on the uh, independence of India. And it was, and the news, front page newspaper says, S.J. Wilfred, the ambassador, Indian ambassador, congratulates Kawinda. My father was very keen that I should get back the name Santosh in our family, then my brother and I maintained that name. So, in 1949, my father was transferred to Nepal. In those days, to get from India to Nepal, you can imagine what a journey that was. I had to go two nights by train, and then we had to take a bus overnight to the Nepal border. And then uh, you had to walk, either walk for seven days, or you were carried in a basket like this. And I was carrying a basket like this. I was five years old. I sat in this thing for seven days. And you go up this path, and it's just you. There's a guy in front, a guy in the back, and the basket is going like this. And you look down and say, if these guys flip me over, that, that would be the end. <laughs> Eventually, we ended up in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal after seven days of this. We arrived there, no schools there. So my brother, elder brother, and sister were sent all the way back to India. My parents tried to send me to, to school, send me back to India. Every time 
I'd go with my mother. I would cry all the way, and my mother would bring me back again. So, <laughs> so till I was eight years old, I never went to school. But the one very important thing happened to me in Kathmandu. My mother once took me when I was six years old to the local market. And those days, even today in Nepal, it's not a, a, there are many, many poor children, impetigo, kwashok, or draining years. And my mother saying to me, one day you should become a doctor and help all these children. Even though I never went to school, and I was, <laughs> she still wanted me to be a doctor. I don't know how she thought I was going to be a doctor. But even though eventually my father gets transferred back, and uh, we end up in a little town called Madurai. I don't know if any of you know India. This is a uh, in deep deep south, and uh, this is a it's a very traditional little town. There are lots of temples there, and this is how, this was our transportation. It was a horse-driven cart, and this is how we got around. When I got to Madurai, my uh, I had of course not gone to school. So I had an uncle there who was a lawyer. In those days, if you were a lawyer, you were really a big shot. You could do whatever you wanted. So I there was a British school there, a British convent. And uh, my uncle said, well, well, we'll admit him here. My mom, I, you know, I know he hasn't gone to school. but So the principal then uh, interviewed me and said, well, what has he studied so far? He said, well, he hasn't studied. So, so the principal, so, the, so the, my uncle said, well, put him in whatever grade you think is appropriate, just ask him a few questions. So they asked me all kinds of questions. I couldn't answer any of them. Eventually, the principal got frustrated and said, can you please spell it for me? And I spelled it as E-T. So I was quite proud. I got 50% of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, somehow I struggled and got through that. I finished. I got up to, uh, I was 12 years old by now, finishing primary school. And my father gets transferred to, to Germany. And you can imagine getting from a small town in India to Germany. We had to go by train for three days and then by a boat to Marseille in France and then by overnight train to Bonn. We get there and there are no uh, English-speaking schools except an American school, which my parents couldn't afford. So they sent me to Scotland to boarding school. I don't know how many of you have been to Glasgow. I could tell you in the 50s, Glasgow was not a pleasant place. There was no central heating. There was no running hot water. It was freezing. And this was a little uh, uh, subway station that we always used to go to school. And what happened was I got there, and at that time there was an exam called the 11 plus exam. That determined you had to pass that exam in order to finish high school. And the grading system was J1, uh, S1 to S3. S1 was the brightest of the bright kids. S3, you had to get at least an S3 to get in. And J1 was the higher end of the dumb kids, and J4 was the, was the lowest possible. Well, I wrote the exam, and I got a J3. So the principal called me and, and said, the headmaster, as they said, said, what would you like to do? I said, I want to be a doctor. Said, no, 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 that's not possible. You can be an auto mechanic, or you could be a carpenter. And I just started crying and said, no, I want to be a doctor. And here's where how, how things changed in my life. My teacher walked in. Miss Grant was her name. She said, go back to the school class. I'll talk to the headmaster. And we talked. And then she came back and said, I've talked to the headmaster. We're going to appeal to the board. We're going to give you a second chance. The only condition is you come in early every single day, stay at lunch, stay after school, and I will coach you. And because of her, I was able to go from a J3 to S3, and that's the only reason I could finish high school. And one of the very prophetic things Miss Grant said to me was, you must believe in yourself. And this is something I try to try to tell many of my students who are totally dejected. And this reminds me of a quote by Sir Edmund Hillary. Sir Edmund Hillary, you all, uh, those of you who remember history, is the one who, who conquered Mount Everest. And before he got on, one of the reporters went on his trip. One of the reporters asked, "How is how is your team going to conquer the conquer, conquer Mount Everest?" He said, "I'm not worried about conquering Mount Everest. We have to conquer ourselves first. And I think that's what Ms. Grant was trying to convey to me. Anyway, because of her, I finished high school and was finally able to go to Jipmer Pondicherry, as uh, Dr. Susan Carroll said. I finished in the final year of medical school, my first day of rotation in pediatrics. Thank you. Thank you. And I grew about a third, of this, a third of this size. I saw on the very first day, kids, whole room filled with kids. One kid dying here, one kid dying there, one kid dying there. All of them dying from diarrhea and dehydration. I kept thinking there's got to be something we, should, we can do about this. And I really wanted to 
finished, do pediatrics, there are no pediatric programs, so I applied, I'd heard about Johns Hopkins, I applied to, John, to Johns Hopkins, of course they didn't take me, they, there was a small hospital close to Johns Hopkins, their advertisement was there were a stone's throw away from Johns Hopkins, which was true, <laughs> but there was not a teaching program at all, so I was just mainly, uh, we were foreign graduates being, being abused those days, we were right doing admission physicals, writing animal orders, sleeping pills, etc. Anyway, I, I was so dejected. So then the next year I applied again. I applied to Johns Hopkins again. And this time I got an interview and one of the senior faculty said to me, you know, Dr. Santoshan, you're wasting your time. We don't take foreign graduates. Please apply to something that's more realistic. Fortunately for me, one of my uh, attending uh, private physicians, whose patient I'd taken care of, liked me a lot and said, what, what, do you want, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a pediatrician. He said, have you applied to Hopkins? I said, yes, they won't take me. He said, but there's another small hospital called Baltimore City Hospital. There's a doctor there called Harold Harrison. He's a superb pediatrician. I'll recommend you to him. And because, and because of his recommendation, I got into the Baltimore City Hospitals. Now, I always like this quote. You know, when, uh, when William Oslo <coughs> interviewed the first group of residents he was so impressed with them, he said to, uh, to, to Dr. Welsh, Welsh, it's lucky that we got in as professors, we could never enter as students. <laughs> so every time I talk to our Hopkins residents, I remind them of this quote. Anyway, the, probably the best thing that happened to me was the fact that I couldn't actually get into Hopkins at that time because I was exposed to some of the greatest people in my life, people who completely changed my life, Harold Harrison, father of fluid and electrolyte balance, Dr. Bradley Sack, who gave me the opportunity to go out to, to White River, he, uh, and I'll tell you how that happened in a few minutes. Dr. Bob Black, who became a very good friend, that was our chairman for over 30 years, and Dr. Richard Moxon, a pioneer in hemophilus influenza disease. So I finished my uh, residency at Baltimore City Hospitals, and uh, Dr. Harold Harrison uh, inspired me to work on oral rehydration therapy, and my dream was to go back to India and work on oral rehydration therapy. And Dr. Bradley Sack had a project. He was actually a pioneer in ORS himself. He had done a lot of work on cholera. <clears throat> and he said, would you like to go to Calcutta? And that was my dream. And we had a, there was a cholera lab there. We were getting ready to leave, and a war broke out between India and Pakistan. And the U.S. decided to support Pakistan. India got upset with the uh, with U.S. and said, all U.S. projects have to leave right now. It was so devastating for me, I was so disappointed. And then Dr. Bradley Sachs said, I know you're disappointed, but we just got another contract from NIH for a five-year contract to study diarrheal diseases. Why don't you go there for a year? And then uh, by that time, things will, things will get better in, in India. You can, you can go there. That was in 1979. So you can, it's now been uh, 35 years or so. And I tried to remind, uh, young people, when they come to me, a lot of people sort of, a lot of people who have trouble, who have, who've, who are struggling with their courses, tend to drift towards me at Hopkins, and I try to encourage them and say, you know, some of the worst disappointments in your life will turn out to be the best things in your life. And if it wasn't for that instance, and I have to thank both India and Pakistan for having a war, otherwise I never, <laughs> otherwise I would never end up, ended up in the White Mountain Apache Reservation. And for those of you who don't know, this is the White Mountain Apache Reservation here, and this is the Navajo Reservation. And I went there, when I went there, I was absolutely shocked at the conditions. Children dying of diarrhea, just like I've seen in developing countries. And you know, the, uh, the, when, when we moved there, my children were four and two years old. We lived on the reservation. We went to all the, all the birthday parties. We went to all the sunrise, traditional sunrise dances. We were very much part of the community. And as I said in my talk yesterday, death is a terrible thing anywhere, whether it's adult or children. A child dying is a really terrible, painful thing. But when a child dies in your own community, when you know those children, that you're playing with them, you know their families. I was teaching Sunday school there, and my, my wife would also be doing daycare. And some of these kids would be playing with, and the next day what we'd hear the child died. This was a very, very traumatic experience for us. And, we were so blessed that in spite of all these death and suffering, there was, a, there was a resilience in this community that I learned so much from. They are people who have gone through so much adversity over the years, and yet they're so resilient, so peaceful, 
and, and so willing to take you on. People often say, well, it's so difficult to work with the Native Americans. Of course it's difficult because I'll, I'll show you, I'll just briefly go over some of the historical trauma that they've had to endure. This is, of course, a very traditional society, and this is a, one of our colleagues, Novelin Goklish, uh, having a sunrise ceremony. You can say the back of the span, it actually says Johns Hopkins in a tradi <laughs> traditional ceremony. They were able to accept us in this, and we became so much part of this community. When Columbus arrived in the, in the Americas, he was welcomed with open arms. And unfortunately, instead of, uh, instead of being gracious, uh, what he did, the things that he did were absolutely atrocious. This is a journal by Las Casas, a Jesuit priest who accompanied uh, 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 Columbus. He says, the admiral was so anxious to please the king that he committed irreparable crimes against Indians. And this is another quote. You will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets in which smallpox patients have slept, as well as by every other method that can serve to extirpate this, I can't even say this word, execrable race. This is the kind of attitude that was, uh, and that was exhibited towards the Indians. And then you all know about the Indian Removal Act, where Indians were moved. This is the long walk where the Cherokees were moved all the way from Georgia to Oklahoma. And for Indian land, losing the land is the worst thing that can happen. I think all my Indian colleagues here will, will, uh, will attest to my statement. In, land is probably the most sacred thing for an Indian. And, then, uh, and you can see what happened to the Indian territories. These are the Indian code talkers, the Navajo code talkers. They are credited with helping the US to win the war against Japan. And this is Arthur Hubbard. His granddaughter, Olivia Sloan, was one of our students who's now become, I'm so proud to say she's an RNMPH now and doing extremely well. And there was also an attempt at assimilation where many, many uh, Indian children was, were sent off for 50 to 100 miles or even further away so that they could, uh, they could be uh, to boarding school so that they could be uh, inculcated or assimilated into their regular society. And these people, these children would not be allowed to wear their own clothes, would not be allowed to practice their own religion. This is Lena Whitehash. She's one of our staff who's now retired. She stayed, she had to go to one of these boarding schools and she would tell me with tears in her eyes that in order to speak Navajo, they had to whisper at night to each other. They would try on their clothes and, you know, and, they, would, uh, and they would try, and they would also practice some of their traditional ceremonies in secret because if they were caught, they were punished very badly. So I went, uh, when I got there, as I said, many children were dying of diarrhea. Now, for most of us who travel around, you know, diarrhea is most, morally, most, mostly uh, more of a nuisance. But children around the world die. Well, at that time when I started, there were 5 million deaths a year. Now we're less than, uh, less than uh, it's about less than 600,000 deaths each year, still a lot. But these were the typical diarrhea wards that were all around the world when you go. And in this situation, it's very difficult to control nosocomial Infections, you know, you just pass infections back and forth. <laughs> and of course, for most of us, most of any of you who have traveled abroad have experienced traveler's diarrhea, which is a very, uh, and I personally can attest to some terrible times I've had uh, the traveler's diarrhea. And of course, diarrhea also can happen at the most inconvenient times. <laughs> See, the oral rehydration therapy in the early 1980s was not recommended because there was concern about hypernatremia. And the reason there was concern about hypernatremia, back in the early, in the mid-1940s, actually Harold Harrison, my ex-boss, my mentor, had actually demonstrated that ORS can be used safely. That was back in the 40s. And what happened was one of the commercial companies decided to commercialize it. So they sold it in a bottle, which would contain salt and sugar and some bicarbonate. And the mother was asked to take a tablespoon and mix it with water. Now, if you tell a mother, especially if they're uneducated, that a tablespoon of something is good for you, then two tablespoons is better than one, and three is better than two. So there are many cases of hypernatremia around, around the country. So US pediatricians, even though it had been demonstrated in countries like Bangladesh and Philippines and India that ORS can, can be used to treat cholera, US pediatricians were not using it. And foreign doctors who were coming to US and UK were learning about IV fluids, and they would go back and use IV fluids. They said, well, if US, 
does not think it's good medicine, why should we use it? So there's a great barrier. Now, the, the worst case of hypernatremia that's ever been reported in literature is this one. <laughs> but anyway, we had to, we did a bunch of studies to demonstrate that whether a person starts with hypernatremia or hyponatremia, that within, within 12 hours, within 24 hours, we could normalize the electrolytes and the child could be completely hydrated. So this lesson was then taken all around the world. Another big problem was at that time, there was stand, the standard teaching was when a child has diarrhea, you rest the gut. That's what every one of us was taught. This is the Nelson text, textbook of pediatrics, which says usual dietary intake is, uh, is, begins seven to, uh, after seven to eight days. Now, you just think about a child in Bangladesh or India, even on the Apache Reservation when I arrived, they would have six to eight episodes of diarrhea. And if you starve them every time for seven to eight days, that child had no chance of growth at all. And of course, a malnourished child has the highest chances of getting, has higher rates of diarrheal disease. So this cycle went on. And I would go around asking people, why are we doing this? And then people would say, well, this is the way it's always been done. So the only way to resolve that was to do a randomized trial, which is what we did. And I often think about this quote. You know, when I go around uh, teaching, teaching residents, it says from New York Times, it says, half of what we teach you is wrong. Unfortunately, we don't know which half. Then I know in my own career, and those of you who have been around for a few years, you know how much of it, how much of what we were told you absolutely never do, you say absolutely you must do it now. So I just want to be always conscious as you go around, keep asking questions as to why we are doing it. Because if we don't ask those questions, we'll continue to do wrong things. Now, when you arrive there, uh, because because oral rehydration therapy wasn't being used, many children are. And many ch children would come with severe dehydration, and the only option was to do a cut down. Of course, I wish Dr. Carroll was there. I didn't have any surgeons to help me to do the cut down. I had to do it myself. You'll notice that I had some hair at that time. <laughs> Which, uh, I just want to document that one point in my life. <laughs> so this is in 30, about uh, in 2009, we had a, a 30th, 30th year celebration this is Reverend Gunther. He was born on the reservation. And he made the statement to me, I buried 30 babies because I died in the two months before you arrived at White River. That's how bad it was. This is my wife, by the way, Pat. She's wearing a local camp dress. You know, it, one of my beefs says, when, I was, when we used to go camping, we'd both go, uh, go out fishing. And they would come and ask me for a license, but they would say something to her in Apache and leave, because they all thought she was Apache. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this oral rehydration therapy, which, uh, which we tested on the White Mountain Apache Reservation, then was scaled up all around the world. And one of the stories I like to tell, when I was in a remote part of China in 1986 for, a training, for training in oral rehydration therapy, I asked one of the local barefoot doctors, how do you manage diarrhea? And he took out a piece of paper. It was, a, it was a, an article they'd written for a WHO magazine. And he said, this is what they do in White River in the United States. That was, that's what we do here. And that's how far the lesson had gone. And you can see uh, the dramatic impact ORS has had. It's at least 50 million lives have been saved in the last 30 years. So while I was taking care of all these diarrheal disease cases, there was a severe epidemic of rotavirus diarrhea within a three-week period. And while I was managing that epidemic, there were five cases of invasive hip disease that came in. This seemed like a very high rate because there were only 200 births at that time on the reservation. And so I brought back, a, and, I, and I looked back, and I brought back some medical students and actually looked at the rate for the last 10 years. And it turned out the attack rate was at least 10 to, 10 to 20 times as high in the, as the general US population. My first experience with hemophilus influenza was actually at the Baltimore City Hospitals. I was an intern, it was my very first day as a pediatric intern. There was a nine-month-old baby with bulging fontanelle, irritable seizures. It was a no-brainer. I knew it was meningitis. I called the senior resident. He said, I don't have time to come down. Do a spinal tap and call me. I put a spinal needle in and took out the stalact, and the CSF hit my chest. It was turbid. And that child was neurologically devastated. And I would then, I'd never thought at that day that I would continue to continue to work with this organism. I've seen, fortunately, I don't think any of the, I don't think there are any pediatric residents here. If you were, if there are pediatric residents, I don't think the current generation sees him at all. 
we would see so many cases of anopheles influenza uh, in Baltimore, but the attack rate here in this population is so much higher. Now, it's a gram-negative pleomorphic organism. The name Haemophilus comes from the fact that the Haemophilus is blood-loving because it requires blood. Influenza is a Latin for influentia, and the epidemic disease was thought to be due to evil influence. That's how the name came about, Haemophilus influenzae. And later on, it was thought that Haemophilus influenzae is what caused the influenza epidemic. And it, as, you, as some of you may know, in Haemophilus influenzae can cause epiglottitis, a very dangerous disease. If you don't establish an airway quickly, the child will die, and we lost many children due to that. And this is a child with empyema, orbital cellulitis. Uh, so it was a terrible disease. Now, as I mentioned, the attack rates in the native populations was much higher than the rest of the U.S. population. And one other important fact was, in the general U.S. population and in the European population, only about 5 to 20% of the disease occurred under six months of age, whereas in the native population, over 50% of cases occurred before six months of age. So we needed to come up with a vaccine that would be effective in children as young as six months of age or less than six months of age, which is quite a challenge. The only, uh, the only uh, vaccine that was available at that time contained the pure polysaccharide, which is called the PRP vaccine. <coughs> that was licensed, but it it protected children about two years of age. That was demonstrated in Finland. But unfortunately, that was of no use at all for us in the, on, the, on the reservation or even in the general US population because most of the disease, 90% of disease, occurred in children below two years of age. And we also demonstrated that the antibody response to that pure polysaccharide vaccine was tenfold less in the Apache population compared to the White Mountain Apache population. So we had to come up with a, with a different strategy. So I called around the country, and there are two people, Dr. George Sieber and Dr. Donna Ambrosino, were working on a product called bacterial polysaccharide immunoglobulin. What they were doing was immunizing adult volunteers with Haemophilus influenzae vaccine. They would bleed them, and then they would have a globulin that's enriched for Haemophilus influenzae. They were using that for immunocompromised individuals, but they didn't have a randomized trial. They had anecdotal experience that, that, uh, that, that they thought it protected those individuals. So I asked George, could you give me the product? And he said, no, you can't. I can't give it to you. You have to call FDA. So FDA said, they can only give it to me under an IND. So I decided to do a randomized controlled trial. And we actually did the trial and demonstrated that this product, DFIG, protected against Haemophilus influenzae type B and had suggested it could also protect against pneumococcal disease. The problem, was, the problem was the product was very effective, but we had to give repeated doses and it was very expensive, about $100 a dose. And the other big problem, we had to give a very large volume, like 0.5 cc's, <laughs> 0.5 cc's per kilo, so a three-month-old kid would need like five cc's. So that was not a, a permanent solution. Fortunately for us, the new generations of, generation of uh, conjugate vaccines became available. I don't have time to go into the, the conjugate technology, the, the physiology of it, and the immunology of it, but basically it's take the, you take the protein, you, you take the polysaccharide and link it to one of, the, one of the proteins, and there are different proteins that we use, tetanus toxide, the outer membrane protein of meningococcus. And when you do that, you convert the vaccine into a, into a, a in, instead of a T-independent T immune response to a T-dependent immune response, which means when a child receives repeated doses, the child gets a booster response. And also the response to the first dose is much higher compared to the uh, pure PRP vaccine. So I tested all of these vaccines, and we found out the only vaccine that produced a good immune response after a single dose was the PRP-ONP, which is now known as speedvax hip so we decided to do a randomized controlled trial. Since the Apache population was small, we actually moved to the Navajo Indian Reservation. You know, this is 25,000 square miles. From here to here is about 300 miles. This is about the size of the state of West, West Virginia, and we had to maintain surveillance at all of these places. And two of my colleagues, Dr. Jenny Kroll and Ray Reed, were instrumental in conducting this very difficult trial and very difficult terrain. And you know, we had to uh, also get many approvals. Dr. Ray Reed that I just showed went to all of these boards. We had to get over 40 different approvals. We had to go to all these little communities and health boards. 
and explain to them the whole concept of double-blind randomized controlled trial. Now, I have to say in spite, it was a difficult process, but it was well worth it because we had complete community buy-in. And these people also have a tremendous uh, sense of humor. One of them said to me, you know, I understand the reason why you need a control group, but then the other group is going to be completely out of control. <laughs> so, the Navajos, unlike the Apache population, tend to live in very scattered. You might, you might drive about 40 to 50 miles to find one person here, and, and if that person is not there, you'd have to drive another 40 to 50 miles to find the next job, and no telephones, and at least nowadays, several people have uh, cell phone coverage, but we didn't have that those days, and very difficult uh, road condition. This was our statistician who came down to do a site visit, and he was caught down at the bottom of the canyon. The whole time he was hiking back up, he was calculating the statistical chances of this happening again to him. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we did the trial, and it was an outstanding success. Um, in the vaccine group, there were no cases, and 21 in the placebo. Uh, this is after the two doses. Between the first dose and second dose, there were no cases in the vaccine and eight in the placebo. This was better than I ever dreamed about the, the vaccine's efficacy. Anyway, as soon as the vaccine was introduced, we, uh, uh, this was when we broke code. This is a very historic picture now. No child in the world had received the, the licensed hip vaccine, and we were all celebrating. And I went up and running up and down the corridors of Hopkins, saying, we have a vaccine for hip calling everybody. Nobody seemed very interested in this. I was the only one excited. And what had happened was Saddam Hussein had decided to invade Kuwait. Because, and everybody was watching the news because it was the big, uh, the first invasion of, uh, invasion of Iraq. So my thunder was taken away from me. Ultimately, anyway, the vaccine did get licensed. And as soon as we introduced the vaccine, the disease disappeared dramatically in the Navajo and Apache population. And we saw the same thing happening uh, in the throughout the United States, you can see how, how fast it dropped. Then this was then scaled up in many countries, country after country, we showed that the disease dropped dramatically. But my concern was developing countries. I thought we have to get this out to the poorest countries in the world. There was only one country that was using the vaccine uh, in the poorest countries where you know, South Asia and Africa has the most deaths. South, South Africa was the only country that was using it because there was a there was a champion there who was actually, actually done him off his work. So I went to, the, to India. I tried to convince the Ministry of Health there that we should introduce this vaccine into the country. So I spoke with the Secretary of Health, and he asked me, how much does this cost? And I said, $18 a dose. And he just sat up on his chair. Dr. Santoshan, do you know my budget, my entire immunization budget per child is 80 cents. You want me to introduce it? vaccine that's $18 a dose. I said, sir, I'm sure we can find it. We can find donors. There has to be a way to do this. He just got up and left the room. And as he walked out the room, I just thought about this, this old song, you know, to dream that impossible dream. That he actually said to me, you're just dreaming. And I thought, we have to figure out a way of doing it. We can't let this happen. We can't let the children continue to die. And if you looked at where children are dying, if you drew the map of the world based on where children are dying, not just based on geography, this is what the map would look like. India has 20% of all the deaths, and about 60% of the deaths are in Africa. And yet, we were using vaccines in the most affluent countries where there are very much fewer deaths, which I think was perfectly fine. We should protect all our children, but we need to make sure that all these children also receive the vaccines. So I pulled together, I was managed to get some, get some funding to bring international program managers and donors and everybody together to a meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona, where there was a determination, a declaration made that hip vaccine, we would work towards getting hip vaccine to every child around the world. Ultimately, there was a, a, a Gavi that some of you may have heard about, Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunization, put out an RFP to, for a, put on an RFP and asked, asked groups to bid for a, for a program to, to lobby for hemophilus influenza late type B disease vaccine around the world. So we won the bid and it was a consortium consisting of WHO, CDC, London School, and Hopkins. And I was given the privilege of, uh, of leading this group. And this is Dr. Thomas Cherian from the WHO, Professor Tim Mulholland. This is uh, Rear Admiral Anne Shuckett for the CDC and this is Oko Belli. 
and Rana Haji, who we hired. And Rana Haji, I'm very proud of, who we hired as the, uh, as the project uh, manager for this. She went on and received an award recently. I had the privilege of nominating her for the Federal Employee of the Year, which she got, and she was honored recently at, uh, in Washington, D.C. So when we started out in 2005, only 20% of the poorest countries in the world were using the vaccine. And when we would go to all these ministries of health, I realized there's a disconnect. We as scientists would say, this is a no-brainer. The vaccine works fine, but almost no side effects. We and there's a financing mechanism. Now, Gavi actually said they would co-fund it. They would pay the $18 or whatever it costs, and the country only had to pay 30 cents. And yet there was, a, there was a tension between us. And, you know, and, we, and we tried to go to all over the world. We had to, our team had to fly all over the world. This looks like a United Airlines or Delta Airlines map. This is what our team had to do. We had to go all over the world. And we had, uh, you know, you cannot do these things without face-to-face -face meetings. You have to get people around the table. You have to get all the partners around the table. Unfortunately, there's often the reason why we can't, can't get decision makers to make the right decision is because we don't speak with one voice. Scientists tend to, each of us, begin to talk about small differences we have, just like in, with oral rehydration therapy. People would talk about, well, the sodium should be 19. It's, it shouldn't, some would say it should be 60, some would say it would be 80, and we confuse the decision makers. So we have to get everybody around the table, which is what we try to do. And I realized there's a big disconnect between scientists and decision makers, and this cartoon actually uh, depicts it well. There's a guy who's fishing, and this, this family is lost in the balloon, and he says, uh, uh, he says, where, where am I, is what that guy says. And this guy says, you are 30 meters above the ground in a balloon. And he says, you must be a researcher. He says, yes, but how did you know? He says, because what you told me is absolutely correct, but completely useless. <laughs> he says, but you must be a policymaker. He says, yes, but how did you know? He says, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you are. Now you're blaming me. <laughs> so, so this is the kind of attention we had. We often don't, you know, we talk about incidents of disease, but it doesn't mean much to a decision maker. You say something 50 per 100,000. That's nothing to a Minister of Health sitting in India or Bangladesh or Philippines. Whereas if you say there are 500,000 children who die, that makes some sense to them. And if you can tell them how much money it will save them, that makes some sense to them. So the, the, after, we, after lots of painful discussions all over the world, we began to, the tide began to turn. By 2006, we got more countries using his vaccine. And as we went along by 2009, almost all the countries, by 2010, most countries accepted hip vaccine except India. India was, the, was a very big challenge. There's a very big, there's still a very, very active anti-vaccine group. And most of, and there's, there was scathing attacks against us saying that we are hand in glove with industry, we're making money, we're exploiting Indian children, all of these things went on. There was even a, there was even a, a, a petition at the high court saying that Indian children are being abused because foreign, uh, uh, foreign researcher, researchers are trying to introduce vaccine into the country. So in spite of all those hurdles, we continued, we were persistent, we managed to get, we actually go to all, we needed, we had to go to all the state levels, we even got politicians involved. We realized we're not going to solve this problem just with the, with the scientific community. So we actually got lobbyists and young parliamentarians to support us. And ultimately, India turned the corner in, in 2011. Two states introduced it, 2013, eight states, 2014, more states. And by 2015, all of India will have Haemophilus influenza vaccine. And ultimately, uh, in 2014 now, uh, almost every country in the world now is using the vaccine. And we believe by 2020, 7 million deaths will be saved by, just by using this one vaccine. So it's been a tremendous journey. I just want to close by uh, mentioning not only have I had this opportunity, the great opportunity to work with the Navajo and Apache people, I've also had the opportunity to mentor many young people, and I don't have time to talk about all of these people. All of them are giants in public health. The one person I will mention who's in the audience is Alison Barlow. She, she made an outstanding presentation yesterday about uh, intervention in early childhood. For all practical purposes, she's been running our center for the last 10 years. I've just been a figurehead, and she does most of the work. 
And I think that's that's a strategy you should learn as you get older, get somebody else to do the work and take it. <laughs> um, and also many, many, uh, uh, I've had the privilege of mentoring many, many native, native young people. When I first got to Apache Reservation, hardly anyone finished high school. Now we've got people like Christine and people who've got bachelors and masters and subs. People have dental, dental degrees, uh, JD degrees. I'm very, very proud of that. Now my contribution to them mostly is to make sure that they aim, they aim high. <laughs> and, uh, and if I can leave, uh, I think there are some residents in this room, if I can leave some parting messages with, message with you is that don't be afraid to dream that impossible dream. Don't always go for the low hanging fruit. Aim high. My fear for you, young people, it's not that you aim too high and miss it. My fear for you is that you'll aim too low and you'll achieve it. Make sure you go for your full potential. And don't be afraid of failure. I think failure is the best teacher. The, you never, when you go on your journey, you never know which way the wind is going to blow. You can't control that. But you can certainly control how you set your sail. And make sure that whenever failure occurs, you learn something from it. That's the most important thing. And set very clear goals. Many young people come to me for advice, but they really don't know what they want to do ultimately. And I think Yogi Berra put it best, you better be careful if you don't know where you're going because you may not get there. <laughs> and be prepared to take advantage of opportunities. Opportunities will knock on your door. It's a question of whether you're going to recognize that opportunity or not. The, and remember that as you go along this journey, it's, the reward is not necessarily in the arrival. The real measure of your success is how you conduct your journey. And make sure you conduct your journey to the best, best of your ability. And don't be afraid of criticism, I think. Uh, Florence Nightingale in 1864 said to a young engineer as he was going out to India, you will have much opposition to encounter, but great works do not prosper without great opposition. And just to thank all my uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of workers who worked for me in the last 30 years, and I especially want to thank like people, the people who do the real work, like Orlando Nascio, who was one of my workers who worked for 30 years and now retired, um, Nobelin Goklish, who gone through tremendous adversities, adversities with so many suicides in her own family, so many deaths in her family. In spite of that, she's been able to endure all of that. And you know, Alison and I have tried to get her to do her bachelor's degree. So many times she'd come with tears in her eyes to me and say, I cannot do this anymore. I'd say, no. Nobeline, you can do it, you can do it. Ultimately, she's now got her bachelor's degree and she's one of our supervisors. It's a real success story. And just uh, I want to thank all these wonderful babies who've given me so much joy in my life. And uh, just this final picture of this family came to me. We were at a, I was at a field visit and my field director said, this family wants a picture with you. I said, sure, but why? He said, well, this girl was in our hip study, this boy was in the pneumo study, and this child was in our rotavirus study. So, <laughs> so I'll just end with this Navajo blessing. With beauty before me, there may I walk. With beauty behind me, there may I walk. With beauty above me, there may I walk. With beauty all around me, there may I walk. And beauty, it is finished. Thank you very much.
India to buy into the program because there wasn't enough money in the public health sphere. And the disconnect in this country between funding of public health and funding of medical care is so great. And it's the public health that really contributes to longevity, saving lives more so than what we do in terms of medicine. Um, and I really commend you on your, what you've accomplished and contributed to that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think some of the quietness is just how moved everybody uh, is in this room and uh, how meaningful your your, uh, your work and your remarks and your very being uh, are. I'd like to just know what's next for you. <laughs> I, what's next is finding a standard takeover for me, and I think I've already found someone who's sitting right here, <laughs> Alison Barlow. Um, what, what I enjoy most in life is mentoring, which is what I'm doing now. I've given up most of that. As I said, it's actually through Alison Runs, the center more or less. I spend most of my time mentoring. And I sit, see the young people back there. I see these bright faces. It gives me so much joy when a young person walks into my office and say, I want to do something X. Would you help me? And actually, the I actually like it more when the person has, uh, has actually failing miserably because I can relate to that because I fail miserably so many times. And some of these young people, I've, I have a very bad reputation with our admissions committee because I've gone to bat for so many people uh, whom the admissions committee didn't want to take. And I've not always been right. Uh, there are some who just haven't made it. But I can say by and large, the poor, the, the students who are doing poorly, but the, who are working hard. The ones who work hard and sincere, they may not get their A's and made the top of the class, but when they go out to the real world, they do so well because they've had to work so hard to get back, get to where they are. And so championing, championing people who are struggling is what I want to do. That's fabulous. Well, in addition to thanking you for being with us today, I want to thank the whole concept of the symposium, which John Byerly and Mary Churchill have had for a number of years particularly Christine Holden for this year, helping us with this particular symposium around Indian health and, and uh, Native American health and globalism in that context. And many, many other people, Wendy Murphy and Daphne Thomas, who helped construct a lot of the activities that have gone on for this. But in particular, both Susan Carroll, thank you for being with us today and for all the important work you're doing. And we have all of our awe and admiration. If I might say one, one thing, uh, I would, uh, very much like to express my pride and joy at, at having somebody like Christine here at Dartmouth, and she's such an inspiration. And I, I know she has, she's going to do great things. Best of luck. Thank you.